This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. I want to take a short two-minute review over the last six months so you'll kind of know where we've been and where we're heading. We started in the fall, I think maybe August or September, talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And we went through every one of those Beatitudes at great length. We went all the way down to, to towards the end of that and kind of stopped on verse 20, where it says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And we talked a little bit about what that kingdom is like, and I've been sharing just sniblets of that kingdom with you ever since we met together as a church. The Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus Christ's manifesto where he lays out what life in the kingdom is all about. There's different realities in the kingdom of God than there are in the kingdom of Satan that we live in right now, that we are ambassadors, that we're transients. This is not our home, just like it's not Christ's home. Yet we have to function in this kingdom, but the exciting part is, is we're functioning in this physical kingdom, but we belong to a spiritual kingdom that is manifested in us by faith. Not by what we can see, but what has been promised to us and the trust we have to believe in those things. From there, we started talking about some aspects of the kingdom. And we looked in-depthly at the, uh, all the spiritual gifts, where, what they were, what they meant, what they didn't mean, whether they were for you or not. And we kind of focused on this ver- these verses and the verses that followed, talking about them being a manifestation or an expression of the Holy Spirit in our life right now. We talked about there are diversities of gifts, then there are differences of ministries and diversities of activities, three separate things, which all tie in to a person in the Godhead, but the same Spirit, the same Lord, and the same God. You remember all that? So we're laying all this out, which brings us to the major question of cessationism versus continuationism, which is a theological term that basically says God's words means what it says, or we deduct from experience that it must mean something else. And we spent several weeks going through what is primarily taught in evangelical circles today, which is cessationism. Those gifts and those offices ceased We don't know when. We're assuming they ceased at the close of the canon because we misinterpret the 1 Corinthians passage about when the perfect comes, all these things will be set aside, assuming the perfect was the Word of God, but the perfect is Christ. And we talked about the... how the scripture teaches continuationism, but we deduct based on our experiences that most things must have ended. In other words, if I were to make a statement like, or quote Jesus when he said, you will know my disciples by their fruits. By 
implication, that's a statement that's made that is true then, and the assumption is it would be true tomorrow, the next day, and forever, until Jesus said only up until a certain point, correct? But what we do is we take these promises of the gifts of the Spirit and promises of the things God has given us and artificially put a date on the end. That he makes a statement like the church will be built on apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. There's no end to that, but we say, no, 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 we're going to cut that right down the middle, and we're only going to accept, we're not going to accept apostles and prophets anymore. We're only going to accept pastors, teachers, and evangelists. Why? That's a deduction that we're making by with our own logic on Scripture based on experience. And then we started talking about how the Holy Spirit does manifest himself in the book of Acts. Well, the book of Acts is a prototype. The book of Acts is him showing us exactly what the church is like so we can see how we're supposed to function today because that's how they function then. Oh, no, no. There's a date on that. There's an end point on that. In AD 70, when Titus Vespasian came with the 3rd, 4th, and 7th Roman Legion and destroyed Jerusalem and, and, and banished the people, that's when it all ended. No. But where do we come up with that? Well, it's based on our experience. Because my experience says none of these things are manifest in my life or my dad's life or my mom's life or my church life and my denominational life. And so therefore they can't be true. Because if they are true, then all of a sudden the spotlight comes on me. Maybe there's a problem with me. Maybe it's my hermeneutics. Maybe it's my commitment to Christ. Or, and that's uncomfortable, is it not? And so we've been looking at these. And today we're... We're going to be looking, talking about his kingdom a little bit because that's where it flows in the book of Acts. We're going to talk about signs in the kingdom. I mean, what are the signs? What are the indications? What are the characteristics of someone who lives in the kingdom of God? Now, I could ask everybody their opinion, but the scripture lays out for us incredibly clear that when Jesus was preaching, the gospel message that he was preaching was not I am the Savior, come to me, I'll give you eternal life. That's part of it. But the gospel message he was preaching was about the kingdom. It was always about the kingdom. The kingdom here, we got the whole kingdom parables in the, in the book of Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. How do you get entrance into the kingdom? You get entrance into the kingdom by salvation, but it was the kingdom element that Jesus spent a lot of his time preaching that we never do. Ah, there, I painted with a huge brush again, didn't I? We seldom do today. It's the kingdom. In the Olivet Discourse, where he's giving his last charge to his disciples, talking about what's going to happen in their time and our time, look what he said, Matthew 24. And this gospel of the kingdom, not the gospel of eternal life or the gospel, but the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to them, to the nations, and then the end will come. So this gospel of the kingdom, Jesus called it, is what we're basically preaching today. The good news or the gospel message is of the kingdom of God. He began his ministry in the Lord's Prayer. Teach us how to pray. Okay, here's how we're going to pray. Let me start out with the things that are most important. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, praise, sanctify, glorify your name. What's next? The kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? Well, on earth. Here where you exist, where you live, where you're in this kingdom, just like it is in heaven. My sovereignty in heaven applies on earth in the kingdom in which you live. Again, the, the, 
the prayer begins with hallowing God, who is sovereign, and then talking about praying for his kingdom to come. The preaching of Jesus. I love this. And, you know, if you, unless you're looking for it, it's real easy to kind of just gloss over this stuff and not see it. Matthew 4.23, you'll find this a couple times in Scripture, these trilogy verses where they lay out all the things Jesus did in, in, in bold kind of groupings. And Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues. We don't know what they were teaching. I mean, we don't know what he was teaching. Um, scripture doesn't say. It doesn't lay out for us the actual passages that he was maybe exegeting for them to, to talk about the issues he wanted to. I mean, that, that's kind of we know he was teaching, but you can't really pick up from Scripture what the context is. But we sure know what he was preaching. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And if I'm preaching to you the gospel of the kingdom, the people are going to say, really? Show us. Show us what life is like in the kingdom. Okay. And healing all kind of sickness and all kind of diseases among the people, because that's kingdom living. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. We find this all through the Scripture. Here's Mark. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. We assume that means that Jesus died and was buried and raised on the third day, and if you accept him into your life as the Lord Jesus, then he will save you. I mean, that's our gospel. But when Jesus was preaching, the gospel was the kingdom, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. You can live in the kingdom, he's saying, by receiving me as the sovereign Christ who I am. It's all about the kingdom. Which brings us to the classical question, what is the kingdom of God? And if once we know what the kingdom of God is, what are the signs or the indicators that you and I exist in his kingdom, that we know that the kingdom is around us? Well, let's begin with the first question. What is the kingdom of God? Well, let this sink in for a second. The kingdom of God is the rule of the eternal sovereign God over all the universe. Got that? God's kingdom is where he's sovereign over the stars and the galaxies and the rotation of the earth and, and, and all that kind. Got that. No, no, no. It's, it's bigger than that. It, it also applies to you. Sovereign over all the universe, including our life. This kingdom has its own set of realities, realized and appropriated not by sight but by faith that often clash with the realities of this fallen world that we appropriate by reason and logic and our senses. We go to school to learn facts about this kingdom. We get master's degree and PhDs in this worldly kingdom. We, when we, we have a problem in this kingdom, we go to the legal profession and get them to handle the problems in this kingdom. And in the kingdom of God, things are totally different. In this kingdom, there are certain economic realities that you save money for rainy days and that you work hard and you invest and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just how the world functions today. But in the kingdom of God, things are different and they absolutely clash and make no logical sense with living in the kingdom we live in right now. For example, the summary verse of Matthew chapter 6, or the last half of Matthew chapter 6, which says, why do you worry about everything we worry about? 
Why do you worry about food? Why do you worry about clothing? Why do you worry about your house? Why do you worry about your car payments? Why do you worry about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat? I mean, look, look, at, look how I take care of everything. You have birds that they don't sow or reap, but I feed them. You have, I take care of, of everything. You have lilies of the field, which I clothe even greater than Solomon himself and all his splendor, which is worth nothing. You're worth far more than that. In my kingdom, if you'll just trust me, I will take care of your needs because I am the master. You are the slave. You are the, the, the doulos. And a master's job, a father's job is always to take care of the needs of his children. True. When you were five years old, did you, did you worry about what you wore? Marley and Maya, they don't worry about what they're eating. They're not, you know, Marley's not outside, you know, hoeing in the garden to make sure that they grow crops so she'll have food next year. That's not her job. That's Seth's job. It's my job to, to take care of my children. It's your job to take care of your children. And we serve, as we just sang, a good, good father, do we not? And yet at the summary of all that worry verse, here's what he said. In this illogical, makes no sense, almost moronic according to modern economics, way of life. But seek first. My retirement? No. My income? No. My advancement in my company? No. The amount of money I make? No. Seek first the kingdom. Gosh, here we are again. The kingdom of God and Christ's righteousness. And if you seek me first, all the things you're worrying about will be added, not just given to you, but added on top of what I've already given to you. And our problem is that we know that's true, but we don't function that way. We spend most of our life earning money and less of our life about his kingdom and then we wonder why, you know, got a big house and nice everything and feel comfortable in our life, but we wonder where the, the power of the Holy Spirit is that was promised, that was manifested in the book of Acts. Matthew chapter 9, it's continuing these summary verses. And Jesus went about, not just in Galilee, but in all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues. Now, I don't know what he's teaching, preaching the kingdom of God and manifesting life in the kingdom by healing every sickness and every disease among the people. It continues, Matthew chapter 28. Then all of a sudden, they accused Jesus of doing the things that he did by the power of Beelzebub. But Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So what are you saying, Jesus? I'm saying that part of life in the kingdom of God is doing what I'm doing, and he has authority over Satan to cast out demons, which we preach about a lot in our churches today, don't we? Most Christians in America don't even believe in that. Mark chapter 1. Or nine. And he said to them, I surely say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present and with dudamas and with power, with explosive miracle working power. They go hand in hand. Book of Luke, just to show you it's not one gospel writer. And when it was day, he departed and went to a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I can't just stay with you. I have a mission. And what is your mission? To go heal people? To go preach salvation and you alone? No, no. I must preach, here we go again, the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because that's why I'm here. 
I came to preach about this kingdom, the kingdom that you and I live in once we become saved. Luke chapter 8. Came to pass afterwards that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing a little change here. Glad tidings of the kingdom. What, you're in the kingdom? Let me tell you how great the kingdom is. Let me tell you how wonderful the kingdom is. Let me tell you how blessed you are to be in this kingdom. They're not like, oh, the kingdom. Oh, that's really nice. I, I just have too many problems that I'm struggling with right now. And the 12 disciples were with him listening to this. And so the next chapter, he gives those 12 disciples some task. So he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons. Why? I don't want you to see what the kingdom's like. If you're going to preach the kingdom, then you need to manifest the kingdom and to cure diseases, power over demons and to cure diseases. Then he sent them out to preach the kingdom and to manifest life in the kingdom to heal the sick. Can you see how they're connected? Totally connected. And it's all through the scripture. Kingdom, and here's what happens in the kingdom. Well, you want us to go preach the kingdom as impotent people that we can't manifest life in the kingdom? No. I want to give you what comes with the kingdom first. I want to give you the power to cast out demons and to cure illnesses. Now go out there and preach what the kingdom's like and show them the same manifestations of the kingdom that I have shown you, that many of us have never experienced. One of the reasons we've never experienced it is because we don't believe it. And even if we did believe it, we don't want it. Because if it happened, it would demand a greater commitment to Christ than we're willing to give him now. Matthew chapter 6, 33, that we've already looked at, about seek first the kingdom of God, in Luke's account of that at another time. He says, and do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink or have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your father knows that you need these things. Got that. Then what am I supposed to do? But seek the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. And then he adds this. I I, I don't know what that means. If I seek the kingdom of God first, then I'm not going to be able to seek my own wants and my own cares and my own desires and the stuff that I want to affirm me in this world. Don't worry about that. Don't fear that little flock. Why? Because it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's what your good, good father wants to give to you if we seek him first. And everything changes. Everything you've known about Christianity, your life with Christ, sometimes this arm-length kind of relationship where you occasionally have times where you feel his presence or he speaks to you. It just gives you this euphoric high that lasts for a short period of time, and then it's back in the doldrums again. It's not what life in the kingdom is all about. Kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? And what are the signs that follow those who are in the kingdom? Now listen, this is where I want you to just, I want you to try to just trust the word for what it says, Okay? I'm not, gonna, I'm not trying to tell you something that's not in the Word. I'm going to lay the Scriptures out for you, and they're going to lay out for you, and you're going to see them in white and yellow versus black and white, and it's your choice whether you believe them or not. When Jesus was at Nazareth, he began his ministry, 
And he basically came and they asked him to speak and he stood up and he took the scroll of Isaiah and he opened it up to a particular point in Isaiah and he read about the things that he was implementing. And, and I've shared with you before that if you'll, if you'll compare the, the passage we're going to look at now and the actual Isaiah passage, he left off one phrase. And at the very end of that, where there's a comma in the Isaiah passage, he put a period. And the part that he left out was the day of vengeance of our God. And then he said, this day, just what I've read to you is fulfilled in your hearing, because the latter part of that will be fulfilled later. Remember us talking about that? But we forget, because that's kind of a cool thing, we forget what he did fulfill. Look what he says here. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found, this is his job, he looked at it to found the exact place he wanted to prophetically let them know that this was the inauguration of his ministry and his message, preaching the kingdom of God. And here's what he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has, one, anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Two, he sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Three, to became, proclaim liberty to the captives. Four, recovery of sight to the blind. Five, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And six, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, period. But in the Isaiah scroll, there was a comma there. And then he says, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Everybody's looking at him. What's, how is he going to expand on this prophetic messianic text? And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is why I've come. This is the message I'm proclaiming. I'm preaching to you the kingdom of God. This is what is involved in the kingdom of God. And here they are, preaching the gospel to the poor, healing the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty to the captives, restoring sight to the blind, liberating the oppressed, and proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus said, I am fulfilling this in front of you. This is why I've came. This is the message I'm proclaiming. And we see later on that he keeps talking about preaching in the kingdom and preaching the kingdom and preaching the kingdom. This is part of the kingdom, which raises this question. When these ministries characterize the behavior of Christians what Jesus said he came to do, and now the point who lives in us, then we know the kingdom of God is present. We know the kingdom of God is present when, present when the gospel is preached to the poor, when the brokenhearted are, are comforted, where the oppressed are, are released, where the favorable year of the Lord is proclaimed. Got that. I mean, that's, that's logical, is it not? It's also logical to assume that when these do not characterize people who claimed to be Christians. The kingdom of God is not present in, around us. doesn't mean that they may not be saved, but there's no manifestation of the kingdom of God that he's allowed us to live. We're still functioning in the flesh. We're still functioning in our way of doing things. We're still functioning with our mind and not our spirit. And none of these things are being appropriated by faith. A little later on, John the Baptist was put into prison. Now, this is early in Christ's ministry, put into prison. And there he began to doubt because Jesus was not fulfilling the messianic expectations that John had at that time, where he was basically going to free John and he was going to set up his earthly kingdom. And the disciples didn't understand that either. We see that in Acts chapter 1. And so they sent to John sent a couple of his disciples to him and said this, hey, are you really the Messiah? Are you really the one that's coming to set up this kingdom? Or should we wait for somebody else? 
And we find that in, in Luke chapter 7. When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? At this time, Jesus is manifesting life in the kingdom. He's curing many with infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. But while he's doing that and the people come from John, here's how Jesus answered. It's very carefully. Jesus answered him and says, go and tell John the things you've seen and heard. And he begins listing those. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. You're asking me if I'm the Messiah who's going to come and usher in the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of God. And I'm answering you, John, not by saying yes. I'm saying, look what I'm doing. Everything that I'm doing is what the Messiah would do, manifesting the kingdom of God. So you go tell John what you have seen and heard me do. And now we have to add a few more. Not just the ones we looked at in in the Isaiah passage, but signs of the kingdom are healing the sick, casting out evil spirits, making lame people walk, cleansing lepers, restoring the, the hearing to the deaf, and raising the dead. You ever been in the kingdom of God? You ever seen the kingdom of God manifest like this in your life? Does the kingdom of God manifest itself anywhere on this planet at any time like this? And the answer of God is yes. You can read hundreds, maybe even thousands of reports of this going on everywhere other than the West. Because we're too cognitive. We, we don't accept those kind of things. And we've kind of niched out our own little life. But when you're in foreign countries and I mean, there are miracles that take place over there that should be commonplace in the kingdom of God, but we've, we just don't believe this stuff. I want you to understand this list is not exhaustive. There's a lot of other indicators of that, but uh, it gives you basically a broad view picture of what life must have been like in the early church. These people got saved, and all of a sudden, the kingdom of God is with them. They're, they're excited about the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is manifesting himself. We find all these signs and wonders are taking place. We see people healed, like the account we talked about last week um, at the temple, or two weeks ago, at the, uh, the temple steps. We find people raised from the dead in the book of Acts. We see this kind of kingdom manifested that way. We just have a tendency of not seeing it today. But there's one other sign of the kingdom I want to share with you that is probably going to be the one that caused us the most problem as Americans. It's going to be the one that, that we balk at. And, and it's almost the one that if we can't accept this one, which is so less supernatural than the other ones, there's no way we're going to be able to accept those. And that's simply this, sharing material goods. <laughs> Wait a second. That just flies in the face of the American work ethic. Sharing physical, material goods. Twice in the book of Acts, it is listed. Actually, other times in the book of Acts, we're seeing it twice now. We find out later on it's listed. It's manifested more than any other of these signs. The miracles are manifested. Yeah, well, that's something God does through you. The, uh, the people raised from the dead, yes. I mean, that's, that's something that God does through you and for, for his glory. And we find it 
Paul and Barnabas are preaching, and he looks out there, and he sees a man who has the faith to get healed, and he asks him to stand up, and the guy says, I can't, because I'm a cripple, and all of a sudden, he says, in the power of the name of Jesus Christ, rise, and he does. Remember that kind of stuff? That's, that's supernatural stuff that God does, but when it comes to sharing possessions, that's stuff you can do. That's a choice that we make, to voluntarily live in that commitment, to live in that kingdom, and we balk at it almost every single time because of this innate selfishness that our culture breeds in us. I've got it in me. I mean, I've worked hard for that stuff. I don't want to give it away. It's in a barn rusting. I know, but I paid good money for that. And You know, I, I've always been amazed whenever, um, whenever somebody donate something to a church. I noticed this in all the Baptist churches I was at. Hey, pastor, I got a church, uh, a sofa I want to donate. If you'll just get the kids from the youth group to come by and pick it up. Yeah, well, it's, it's a sofa you don't want to stay on anymore because it's got cat hairs on it. It's all ripped to pieces and you're buying something new. And what am I going to do with this old sofa? Well, I'll give it to God. Never, ever, ever do we ever think of keeping our old one and giving the good one to God because it just kind of bothers us, you know? There are exceptions to that, but... Watch what happens here. This is in Acts chapter 2. You have 120 in the upper room. We've already looked at this. 120 in the upper room, and, and all of a sudden, Holy Spirit comes upon these men. Peter, Peter gets up and preaches this less than 200-word sermon, and 3,000 people get saved. What should we do? How are we going to live? And, and all of a sudden, it gives us this broad view, view picture of what life was like in the first century right after Pentecost. And look what's focused on here. And they, the church, continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear, holy, reverent fear, fell upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done to the apostles. But Luke doesn't highlight those. Luke doesn't say, this guy was healed, this guy was raised from the dead, this blind person received their sight, this lame person walked. The first time we even see that highlighted, a physical healing, is in Acts chapter 4. But instead, what blew Luke away what would blow most of us away is not these miracles that we just attribute to the sovereignty of God, but the miracle that takes place in the life of the believer who realizes that it's not about what I possess anymore, it's about who possessed me living in the kingdom. And here's what he emphasized. Now, all who believe were together, okay, and had all things in common, sold their possessions and divided them among all as anyone had need. 3,000 people here from a lot of different countries and a lot of different dialects that you didn't even know and were to take whatever age you were at when you got saved. At 62, everything that I've accumulated in a lifetime and to sell that and just you just give it to whoever needs. I don't really care because my life belongs in the kingdom and God's going to do incredible things. And, and that just seems insane to us today, does it not? You're going to get this guy over here that refuses to work, and he's going to take everything and just get fat on everybody else's efforts. You know, Paul had to deal with that in the early church. You don't eat, and you don't work, you don't eat. Do you remember? I mean, there, there, are, there are people who take advantage of everything. But they didn't care. That was for God to sort out. Now we're in Acts chapter 4. A whole new set of believers. You know, now all of a sudden there's 5,000 men have come to faith in Christ. And who knows how many women or children. I mean, there may be 15,000 people here that have come to faith in Christ. And many of these people, the majority of these people weren't present in Acts chapter 2. They didn't even understand how that works. 
They had just come to faith at the preaching of Peter and the healing of the man born born lame in Acts chapter 4. And now they're being introduced to life in Christ, what it means to live in the kingdom. And it's amazing that the thing that Luke points out in them is not the miracles and the the prophetic messages and, and not all the stuff that makes us feel good. It's this thing that just just hits us in the core of our selfishness is they're sharing their goods again. Points that out twice. Look at Acts chapter 4. Now the multitudes of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and neither did anyone say that anything he possessed was his own. It's not my car anymore. Actually, it's the Lord's car. I belong to the Lord, and the Lord let me use that car. And so, you know, that, 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 that car belongs to the Lord. Whatever God wants to do with it, that's fine. We, we, don't trust, we don't trust each other enough to do that. Because we, you know, when we first got saved, when our, little, our kids are young, they see a homeless man on the street that has a sign that says, homeless, need food, God bless. Do you remember? And our five-year-old kids, Dad, stop, stop, give him some money, he's hungry. And we're going like, nah, ain't going to do that because uh, he's probably just going to go buy cigarettes or beer and uh, he's probably, he's probably you know, make $60,000 a year. And I've been burned too many times by that to trust again. And we feel the same way about each other in the kingdom of God. Look what it says here. But they all had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. All right, Luke, is that all you're going to say? No, I'm mesmerized at this, he says. And there was not anyone among them who lacked. Oh, we're going to go back to the sharing of goods now. That he just, he can't get off his mind. For all who were possessors of lands and houses sold them. Now, wait a second. I mean, couldn't you say like, discretionary income, like the 20 bucks in my wallet, can't you, you know, like how about my vacation money, but my house and my land, and they brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and distributed to each one that had need. Twice now in four chapters, the defining characteristic of living in the kingdom of God, in addition to signs and wonders and healings, and later on people raised from the dead, is this trust not of each other, as much as they trusted God to take care of them. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and you don't have to worry about all this kind of stuff. You don't have to fight to defend it. Fact is, God will add that to whatever else he wants to give you. Now, let me make sure we understand this clearly. The issue is not about material goods. The teaching here doesn't say that poverty produces piety that poor people are more spiritual than rich people, so therefore if you're poor, you're a better Christian. It's not what we're talking about here because there were houses that the disciples met in and those people still own the homes. This is not compulsory. It's not a command that says this is what you have to do. I mean, nobody told Barnabas that he had to sell a piece of property and go deposit all the money at the disciples' feet, yet he did. And it was God that used Barnabas on the missionary journeys with Paul. So it's a choice, maybe. And then we have Ananias and Sapphira, and nobody told them, you have to do this, and and they didn't want to, so they lied about it. That was their own free will. They they did it on their own. So we're not talking about the fact that, that being poor makes you more spiritual at all. But it's the priority that money has in our life. And I don't know about you, but money is, it's tricky. It's sinister. It's... 
Makes you feel good about yourself. Makes you feel better than somebody else. Makes you feel entitled. I've got a lot of money. I've got a bigger house, a bigger car, and I deserve this. I deserve to be better. I deserve to be waited on at a restaurant. I deserve to to have have the best car. I mean, and we even preach that in our we even preach that in our in many churches today in the whole prosperity gospel. God don't want you driving around in junk. Really, where did that come from? You know, I mean, where, where did that come from? But when it comes to priority, think about mostly for men. How much of our life do we spend earning it? Well, I have to have it. No, not really. We could live on far less, but we choose not to. We, we, we have a certain level of comfort that's expected in our culture, and to live less than that makes us feel inferior or subpar to somebody else. And, and you know, in some cultures and some are in some families, you got the husband working and the wife working just to have a big house that stays empty most of the time because they take their kids and farm them off to daycare because somebody else has to raise them because we're too busy making money ourselves. And that, that's acceptable today. If, if you, um, if you're a woman and you tell somebody that your aspirations in life are to be a, uh, wife and a mother, uh, our, our culture will not honor that. I mean, it does. You're throwing your life away. What are you talking about? You can't trust this man. What are you going to do after you've raised all these kids and you're 46 years old and he dumps you and, and goes out with them? What are you, how are you going to support yourself? And you'll be pushing out cards at Walmart. You ever heard that before? What causes us most worry in life? It's money. It's money. How are we going to pay for this? Or how are we going to pay for that? And it's the priority that those things take in our life. So the question is, do we really believe the Matthew 6, 33 passage where it says that if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that he will add to us all the things in which we need? If you really study this passage, you will find that the things that really offended the Holy Spirit was not that people had money. It wasn't that people um, had wealth. It was poverty. It was people that were actually poor. So in a church setting, what offended the Holy Spirit here was the fact that not that that I had a lot of money, but I allowed someone, if I had more than I needed, I allowed someone to go without. I mean, how, how, how can that happen in the kingdom of God? It's not possessions, but poverty. So the Holy Spirit moved on the lives of believers to, to alleviate their property and then turn around or alleviate their poverty in the lives of other people by selling their assets. We find that in Acts 4.34, where it says that there was not anyone among them who lacked. It doesn't say they were rich, but everybody had enough. I don't know about you, but I could probably live on far less than I make. Could you? It's a choice we make, though. I mean, in America, I have a choice. In America, I can make as much money as I want to. I, I have the freedom to not be under a caste system or not be, you know, a, a different class than somebody else. We have, we have unlimited potential in America, which is wonderful. But most of the church today, most Christians that I know, including me, have used that to just make my life easier rather than alleviating the pain and suffering of others. And there's two examples we have in Scripture. First one is of Barnabas, which is the very next verses in verse number 36. After we see the sharing of things in verse of chapter 4, verse 32 through 35, we have an example, two examples really. Here's the first one. 
And Josie, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles. Wow. It's the apostles that named him Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement. I mean, this guy was so encouraging, so happy, so kinetic that people wanted to be around that the disciples says, we're not going to call you that anymore. We're just going to name you son of encouragement. We're going to name you Barnabas. And all he wanted to do was serve God. He wasn't even a Jewish Christian. He was a Hellenistic Jewish Christian. He wasn't from Jerusalem. He was from the country of Cyprus and he had land. It was given to him. He earned, he bought it. It was an inheritance. Who knows? So he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's all we hear about Barnabas now until a couple chapters later when Paul has been banished to his hometown. Barnabas goes out to get him, to bring him to Antioch, and then the rest is history. So if I had a choice between holding on to my property and living a pretty good life in Jerusalem until I got old and died, or having a life like Barnabas, the fleshly Steve goes, give me Jerusalem because the other stuff makes me feel uncomfortable. The spiritual Steve would go, why would I not want to be on a missionary journey with Paul? True? It's a choice we make. And it's almost like Barnabas is going, man, I got time to collect rent. I don't have time to pay taxes. I can fund some of this with, with, I don't want to be encumbered by this debt anymore that ties me to this kingdom. Not that they told Barnabas to do that. It was a free choice that he made. In the very next chapter, chapter 5, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who also had a choice. I just want to read this to you. I'm not going to go into great detail about it. Chapter 5, verse 1. It says, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, a land. Now, they, I think they did it because they wanted to basically get the accolades that Barnabas did. Wow, Barnabas, son of encouragement. You really encouraged us as a church, Barnabas. Look what we've got now to be able to help other people. Well, hey, I want that accolades. I, I want to be considered spiritual too. So Ananias and Sapphira did that. Verse 2, And he kept the back part of the proceeds. His wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Totally his right. He didn't have to give any of it. He didn't have to sell the land. This is not a command. It was a free will thing he did. So he held some of it back. I got a piece of land here for $100,000 and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give 20 to the apostles. I'm going to hold the other 80 back or whatever the number was. But Peter said to him, and I have no idea how Peter knew this, probably exercising a spiritual gift. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? Could you not do exactly what you wanted it to? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? You could give whatever you chose to give. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've lied, you've not lied to men, but to God. You've read this before. You know what happens? Bam! Ananias hits the ground dead. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last, and so great fear came upon all those who heard these things. Better believe it. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much, what your husband just said. And she said, yes, for that amount. So Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last, and the young man came in and found her dead and carried her out, buried her by her husband. And great fear 
came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things, not just the community of believers, but everybody else. Oh, my gosh. And don't lie to this God. I mean, this, he's a loving God, but he is a, he is a fearful God. Don't do that. So what do you think happened after this? All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit moved freely again. All of a sudden, the, Holy, the kingdom of God became manifest among the believers. Look at the very next verse, verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, <coughs> many signs and wonders were done among the people. Wow. It's like, it, it's like there was a movement of God. There was a selfish attack from the inside, just like we had these attacks from the outside. God eradicated that, and now the Spirit is flowing again. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them. Because this was a scary, fearful God now. But the people <coughs> esteemed them highly. Continuing, and the believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes now, both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the street and laid them on bed and couches that at least a shadow of Peter's passing might fall on some of them. This is life in the kingdom again. Verse 16, and a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Isn't that amazing? Now, we can believe that this just only applied to them and that what happens in other countries is just an anomaly. Or we can believe what the Word says because there's no indication that this was ever meant just to give us a glimpse of the first 60 years of the church but not the next 2,000. I mean, how can you call Jesus this the abundant life in Christ when you show us what the abundant life was like and then tell us we can't live like that? Maybe it's us. Maybe it's not him. Maybe it's us. Remember, we started with the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about spiritual gifts. We talked about the theological differences between these two. We're looking at what the Holy Spirit is doing in the church. We're looking at signs of, the, of, of his kingdom. And my question to you, honestly, is, is, is this enough? I mean, is, is six months of this enough? Do you, do you see in your heart with faith, what life in the kingdom is about? Or do you still doubt? Do you still not think the word means what it means? Are you, you know, I'm, maybe, maybe I do believe, maybe I'm just scared. I mean, what is it? I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know what else to do than just tell you and show you what the scripture says with each time I preach 30 verses of scripture. And then it's up to you to believe whether it's true or not, whether we have the faith to trust it or not, or whether we're still going to hedge our bet. At the wedding yesterday, I asked a question of Levi and I asked a question of Haley. The question I asked of Levi, since he was first, is basically this is exactly what I read. Levi, have you, in the quiet hours with the Lord, considered what is your Christian duty as a husband? And Levi's response was, I have. And I asked Haley the same thing, same verbiage. Haley, have you, in the quiet hours with the Lord, was just you and him, God, is this true? Is it, what, what does it mean to be a godly wife? And have you considered what your Christian duty is as a wife? And if you, if you were able to hear and remember the vows they wrote for, to each other, 
um, they have done this. They, they considered this and they shared those vows with each other. And I thought that maybe that's something we need to do. Maybe it's a question I need to ask of you. Have you, in the quiet hours that you have with the Lord, have you considered the truth about life and his kingdom and your duty to embrace that life? Not as you feel comfortable, but as he lays out, no matter how uncomfortable that life may make you feel. And your answer will either be yes or no. It will be, yes, I've considered that, and I'm ready to embrace that, or I'm not. Or no, I haven't considered that because I'm too busy taking care of my lawn and planting my garden and working and and doing all the things that just eat up our time that we could spend with him. Have you considered the truth that we've been looking at about what life is in the kingdom and your duty to embrace that life. And if your answer is no, if your answer is, I don't believe any of this, then I would love to sit down with you. And I would love for you to take this word, because I spent six months sharing with you what it says, to take this word and show me where you come up with the position that all of this only applies to them and none of it applies to you other than just appealing to your own personal experience. Do you belong to the kingdom of God? Well, if I'm saved, then I I, I do. Okay. How do you know? How do I know I'm saved or how do I know I belong to the kingdom of God? Well, I know I'm saved because I asked Jesus to come into my heart and I felt this warm burning in my bosom or I felt a euphoric kind of high or I wrote down in my Bible exactly the time I did that or I saw some changes in my life and I got a little bit better and then plateaued or I know he's he's in my life because I can feel his presence when I pray. I see him working miracles out of my life. I find as I grow closer to him and older in the Lord that I just want to spend more and more time with him. I mean, how do you know? How do you know that you're saved or how do you know that you exist in the kingdom? Do you believe the stuff we've looked at over the last six months? And has that belief changed your life in any way? Is it possible? Is it possible that under the religion the religious experience that we kind of come and sing a couple songs and hear a message and go home and kind of a self-affirming kind of thing that, that maybe, maybe we missed something, that maybe there was a, there's a deeper intimacy to Christ and a deeper life in the Spirit, and God wants to do things in our life that we can't imagine, that maybe the Holy Spirit living inside of us, God himself dwelling in us and, and creating in us to be a sanctuary and a tabernacle means a little bit more than just the security of our salvation or, or, or some power that we try to get to help us in our bidding. Maybe it's a life-changing radical in our eyes. New experience with him, maybe. And the big question is this. It's been six months. Do you want to see these signs of the kingdom manifested in your life? And if you do, then by definition, as a member of this church, then we'll see them manifested in this church. Is that what you want or not? And if so... What are you prepared to do about it? I mean, how important is it to you? How comfortable are we in Laodicea? I know the church in America is really comfortable. 
in Laodicea. How comfortable are we? It's not a church thing. It's an individual thing. It, 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 it begins with me. It begins with you. It begins with Karen. And it begins with Jim. It begins with each one of us that we make a commitment. God, I want more of you. I want more of you in my life. And if you do want more of him in your life, then you have to be willing to, as I say all the time, jump into the deep end of the spiritual pool. Well, I can't swim. You have a really powerful lifeguard who's beckoning you to get in the water with him. All you have to do is get in. Just jump in. Well, I want to go over my head. Yes. Yes. It's going to be scary. Absolutely. Petrifying. Just like it was when, uh, when you probably learned how to swim. I don't know how you learned. Um, I had to go to little swimming lessons and, you know, living in Florida and all that kind of stuff. It's like 12-week class, learn how to swim. And, you know, my grandfather said the best way to teach a kid how to swim is throw him off the, the, the dock. Boom, into what? The John Wayne way. You know what I mean? One of two things will happen. He'll swim or he won't. You know, when he swims, you'll learn how to do it. It's petrifying to do something like that. But life is finite. And the, the power we have to work with Christ and to have him work with us is it's more than we can imagine. Is this what you want? So I'm asking you this. I'm not making any changes in our service or anything like that. We're not going to do anything like that. But I just want to know where you're at in your belief. Do you believe what we've been talking about for the last six months? Because it all begins in belief. I mean, if, it, if, if you don't believe it, it's not going to happen. If you don't accept his word for what it says, then it's not going to happen. God's not going to drag you kicking and screaming into a deeper relationship with him. It doesn't happen that way. As a matter of fact, it's, it's quite a bit of work on our part, giving him the time necessary to see him have changes in our life. And, and you know, it's like, like his word is a lamp into our feet. I mean, he shows us where I'm standing, shows me the next step, and that's it. I don't see any more till I take that step, and all he illuminates for me is my next step. And then pretty soon you could run that way, but it takes a step to do that. And so I, I just, I, for me, but I just, I would like to get the spiritual temperature of how you guys are in here. And I just want to know, do you believe what I have been preaching for the last six months? Or do you believe I've gone off on some tangent and all the verses that we've looked at really don't mean what they say? They mean something that you feel comfortable with. Because that's, that's what I was taught in seminary. What I was taught in seminary is none of this stuff existed for today. Why? Well, because we don't want to be like the charismatics. They're crazy. Yes, they are. But that doesn't mean that, that because of someone else's error that you and I have to be disobedient to what his word says. Do you believe? Now I'm going to, um, I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to pray for us here. And I'm, I'm going to ask you, please, please don't let peer pressure enter into this. But I'm going to ask you at the end of my prayer that if you believe honestly believe what I've been preaching for the last six months about the gifts of the Spirit, about God still wanting to work today as he worked back then, that of all the stuff that we see in Scripture, I'm just going to ask you just to stand, okay? Do not stand, please, because, well, everybody's going to stand, and I don't want to look like the only guy that doesn't believe. Please don't do that, because I just want to do maybe one or two in here. There may be maybe a half a dozen. I don't really know. I've heard from some people who, um, who firmly believe 
in this, as I've talked with them over the last six months, and, you know, they're excited about seeing where God moves, and to men, our shame, people I've been talking to, they're all women, not men. Men are real hesitant because this is going to require something to me. I can't just come to church and sit. It's going to be something expected of me. This stuff is really real. My life's, my wife's going to look at me and expect to see something godly out of me, and I'd just rather just rock on like it's always been. And I, I, I just personally want to know, and I want you to be honest, will you? And we'll just, I just want to get a gauge of where we're at spiritually so that we can see what direction the Lord wants us to take us because... And I want to be in the center of his will, don't you? And I have no idea what he has planned, but I do know at 62 years old, it's got to be something better than this. It's got to be something better than this. I mean, I'm kind of tired going through the you know, church stuff. Preach and preach and preach and preach and preach, and people's lives aren't changed. What is it? It's no spirit? It's just, I mean, that bothers me. You know what I mean? So let me pray for us. And then, um, and you, you consider... In the quietness of your time with the Lord, if you truly believe, and then we'll let him, God take it from there. Let me pray.